it did take me a long time, I think, to get the idea of what is the importance of classical education and what is my role as a classical teacher. And it, it took me, I think, a couple years to really get that under my belt. But it was a lot easier to do because of the curriculum that was just set out in front of me. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with Martin, Tanya, and a very special guest, <laughs> Mrs. Emily Saxon. Thank and you. obviously, we talk a lot about truth and goodness on this podcast, so we thought we'd turn our attention to beauty. We brought the oh. best guest possible. <laughs> oh, oh, my. That's He's really yeah. hoping He's for a good... He's been planning that for yeah. weeks. I can that's so right. now we that can intro. let the roast begin. <laughs> that's right. No. That's right. Because um, Emily is Shane's wife. Yes. Which you did not say. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, you didn't yeah. say good Mrs. Preface. Shane Saxon is... No, oh, please, no. <laughs> so, okay. So, the actual topic is going to be the one thing that the three of you share in common, and that is your unconditional love for me. Oh, it is right. You all are classical educators who are not formally classically educated yourselves. That is correct. And even more than that, you all taught Latin and none of you formally studied Latin. And that's right. We well, just, we do things we don't know about. That's mm-hmm. what we do. No, that's not true. But we're going to get into that and the advantages of that, the disadvantages. But before we do, Martin, what have you been reading recently? Oh, gosh. I, I, I. I was just listening to some new thing yesterday, and I can't remember what it was. But that, you know, I'm, I'm still stuck on Three Musketeers. I've, I'm still you haven't finished it. No, Stuff when you don't I have haven't. any reading moments. I just, it's just so. There's so many things going on. You need it, to finish it. I, I know. You just I'm, need I'm, to finish I'm it. Closing in on it. Okay. You but always I'm, have an audiobook going, though, don't you? Yes, have, but like, you can't remember what it is. <laughs> so, have you read Three Musketeers? No. Uh, it's time to read it. Yeah. Oh, not after Martin's stellar review. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I want to finish it because I, I wanted to read it because it's just one of those classic books. that It is. It's like the beginning of the swashbuckle tale. And I, and I, yeah. I loved, um, um, I'm blanking on the name Count of, of Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. I love Count of Monte Cristo. This is not the Count of Monte it's Cristo. It's not the Count of Monte Cristo, but we've gone over this before in the show. Yeah. I, I, so I, I'm still. He doesn't know what he's it. reading, but no. he is reading. I yeah, know. yeah. So I'm about two thirds of the way through Spectator Bird by Wallace Stegner. Oh yes, um, I haven't read that. What do you think? It's really good, and I came across this great quote anecdote yesterday that I like. It's I was, not I'm that listening great. to it on audio. It's not that great. It's it is great, great, Emily, and uh, <laughs> I so great that during a red light, I stopped to like write it down on my phone. But yes. The main character is talking about how when someone's like sharing something deeply emotional with him and he doesn't know what to say, he's like, he's the, Wall Stegner is the master of the simile. He says, it's like a man who owns a shop where he fixes cats and he's got clocks in the window. And someone asks him, why do you have clocks in the window? And he says, what would you put in the window? And he proceeded to tell me that on our walk yesterday. And I told him that I thought it was kind of dumb and I didn't get it. And he's like, you do not have a correct level of humor. I totally got it. Thank you, Tanya. Having cats who have been fixed. I totally yeah. get it. What is he going to put in the window? Yeah. Good question. So, Also, my friend Mitchell, I like it. he bought me uh, a book in the popular patristic series. Called, and it's St. Gregory's Rule. And so okay. I'm taking a little brief brief pause from city of God to read that. And then I'm going to go back to city of God. So 
What about you, Tony? What are you reading? I'm reading the newest book by Ann Cleves, mm. which I love Ann Cleves. Have you read Ann mm-hmm. Cleves? You've told me about I her. I really, though. I love her. Have you watched Shetland or Vera on BritBox? No. That's her books. Okay. Those are, those are her books. Yes. You should watch both of those. Yeah, BritBox like is them. a, it's right up my alley. Yes. <laughs> do you pay for BritBox? Uh, we do not. Uh, well, you should. <laughs> Coming soon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we have League Pass. I don't know what that is. That's where I can watch all the NBA oh, football. games. Oh, football. It's football. Well, basketball. basketball. But. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a sport. Yeah. So, Anne Cleves, that's it, huh? Anne Cleves. That is, well, I mean, I'm reading Carol's essays, yep. Carol Reynolds' essays. I'm reading Adam of the Road because that's oh, yeah. what Lee and um, Dana and I are currently discussing. Um, so, but as far as my own pleasure reading with my coffee in the morning, it's Anne Cleves right now. I pre-ordered the book because I wanted it so badly and it, they sent it to me in the mail and now I am happily devouring it. That's a great feeling. No, yes. Tony has been giving me flack. Because I've been... I'm sorry. Excuse me. I need, oh, can yeah. I talk to Emily just a second? When is, back, <laughs> when is Frederick Backman going to put something out? <laughs> he just put out something new. <gasps> You read it. We said we were going to talk about it. The we haven't yet. Yeah, no, it's been forever. I feel like we need an. It's time no, for I him. I haven't to, heard of anything. Okay, so, I'm sorry. No, just to introduce Emily. You know, you've given me flack for bragging about how much I read. Emily reads two to three times as much as I do. It's that embarrassing is, for me. That is so false. It's the most <laughs> false statement. So, what have you been reading, Emily? Tell me all 15 books you've read since last week. <laughs> First of all, you came on this podcast since I am a religious listener um Thank you. and you said something about reading five books which i can attest to that's perfectly honest um i've been in a huge reading rut recently i read very little in comparison to him so that's, that's kind of a, be because you have a one-year-old i suppose <laughs> yeah okay but what are you reading right now i am reading um in the vein of british murder mysteries that's an irish murder mystery actually oh. um tana french's broken harbor I've never read her. I love Tana my French. Kid, okay. One of my boys likes Tana French, and I've got several of her books. I love oh, really? Her. Yeah. Have so, you tried one? No, I haven't. What do you like about Tana French? So I do love like crime, suspense, thriller books for the most part, but she's so much better than the just your average, like, you know, buy it off the shelf kind of James thriller. James Patterson. You know? Oh, I do love James Patterson, but. Um, oh, I do. I'm not a fan. <laughs> but that kind of book, though, right? Like a, a beach read. I just call them beach reads, right? Right. Hers are so much more thoughtful. She's incredibly patient with her storylines. Mm. Um, and they're thick. Her books are her books are pretty big. So I, I was reading it last night and I they had just, you know, brought in the suspect. And I'm thinking, great, this is it. This is the end of the book. And then I looked down on my Kindle hate me now i looked down on my kindle <laughs> and it was like 40 percent oh through. so what she's just happen, got right? she's got a lot more to go and she goes really deep into characters and you just really feel like there's a wrestle that these main characters always have and she kind of touches on a different person every book so it's all kind of the same uh, murder squad but it's a different person uh, in the murder squad oh that's nice it's, so very it's not good. like one protagonist it's like the whole group Yes, but they're not, they don't all like work together. So some of it is, uh, you know, in the very first book, she talked about this one particular detective, but then he no longer works for the force in her mm-hmm. next book. And he talks, she talks about her partner, his partner. And then in the next book, it's some guy from the murder squad a while ago. So it's, oh. you don't huh. have to read them in order, but it has been. I, like, kind of I read everything in order. 
Now, Emily, not to start beef between you and someone else besides me on this podcast, but I've heard you at home occasionally critique someone else on this podcast for being derogatory against modern literature. Is that accurate? Who could that be? Would it be the person that said he never reads anything that's less than 50 years old? It could be. I'm not going to divulge my sources. That's not true, though. I just you have, you two, have read recent books. I just, thought, I just was going to mention, so there and, is and reinsert some. myself in here, because there are two <laughs> books that were just been published that I'm reading. Look at that. You See? do say you don't read anything that's less than 50 years old. So how are, are you justifying reading current literature? Just because. Because you just spout <laughs> things out. <laughs> That have absolutely no basis I in just reality. I want to make a philosophical point. Uh-huh. Well, I'm here to counter your philosophical point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emily reads a lot more no, modern. I, re- I, actually read a, I actually read a lot of fairly modern. Yes, I books. know that. So, so when you say it, I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> have I been transplanted to a different planet? I, I'm, I'm just mm. trying to, to keep you guessing. <laughs> I mean, I like I like both. I'm not a big fan of modern lit. I'm not. But I do have my British murder mystery authors. And it is, you're right, about the British murder mystery there. It is different it's from different. the American murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Things happen much more slowly. There's very and they much all less action. in the parlor. That's right. Yeah. Well, and then nothing really happens. <laughs> it does actually. They the just literally talk to people for several hundred pages and then they solve it. That's there's a, not a, a lot of, there's no violence. Nothing really happens. It, right. It's all, it's all very cerebral. It, it is like the, uh, what's it called? Um, there's a whole genre of murder mysteries that are, what are they called? Acad- dark academia. Have you heard this term? No. So it's. And I would say that Tana French is kind of sort of in that category where academia, meaning it kind of, you know, is around students like a university, something like that. But then dark, obviously. Because it's crime. It's crime. It's it, and it's it's not just crime. It's it's dark crime. Like you're you're getting into the the minds of these of these people. Mm. Um, and I would say that that is much more her style. And that's much more my style. Donna Tartt, if you've ever heard of her. I've the heard of American her, but I haven't novelist, read her. She is also very much in that. I would say in that vein. Oh wait, did she write the secret history? Yes. Okay, I have read Dark that. Dark Academia. I feel like that's a pretty mm-hmm. solid yes. title for that. Yes. I think the philosophical point to be made here, to put a bow on this, <laughs> is that we were made for stories, and so to say like only old stories are great or only new stories are great, like is is a little short sighted. I think Martin's point, which is is a sound one, is that there are really great stories in the past, and so mm-hmm. if you only go to the to the to the modern, you're you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. But there are also we were made for stories, so they're great modern stories as yeah, well. Yeah, I was I was engaging in overstatement to make point <laughs> that we most of us just read modern fiction, and mm. we you, I think that 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 causes a lack of a of a balance mm-hmm. in in your read because you need to be able to see things the way <clears throat> people in other ages saw them yeah. in in order to really understand. Human beings. Well, I'm glad that we got this straightened out. Thank you for calling it out. We should let other I think people you on all the called it out for her, as I recall. Oh, no, she, oh. Didn't, she, she didn't. Oh, she yes, didn't pick a fight true. with Martin. That's true. Shane well, tried to pick the fight yes, between you and Mark, you and yeah. Emily. Let's turn to our topic at hand. So, <laughs> classical education is, as we know it today, is relatively recent because what we're trying to do is get back to the past, and mm-hmm. so in its very essence. 
to try to get back to the past, to try to restore the tradition is a more recent enterprise. However, so the, the result of that is that a lot of people in classical education today were not classical educated. The three of you, for instance, are all classical educators that didn't have a formal classical education. Someone could say that that is really challenging to become a classical teacher when you've not had a classical education yourself. What were your experiences, Martin, as you became a classical educator that made it possible to do it? And what were the advantages of not having had a classical education? Well, <clears throat> when you say not having had a classical education, in one sense, that's not true because I studied philosophy in mm. college. So I think um, I, if you can do philosophy, because I think, uh, you know, people talk about the degradation of a lot of uh college education today. And I think that's true. Um, but there are certain departments it's harder to corrupt. And, you know, if you have to read, I said this before, if you, if you have to read Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason, mm -hmm. then you have to either have, have come to it with a good education or you have to get it while you like really along. work hard. You have to work hard. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Um, and so I think actually probably in taking the philosophy degree that trained me to, to understand that you can um, set a challenge before you like that and you can do it. You can, you can succeed in it. Um, and so I think I came to classical education having already kind of conquered something that I, that was hard mm. and, and really doing some of the things that we did teaching Latin when we didn't know it, um, uh, teaching. Now I had a background in, in philosophy. So the logic was not as hard. I, I had some background in that, but I, we studied modern logic and I, my book was on traditional logic, which is quite different. So it was, it was something different. Um, but I think that, that um, I did, I did have some preparation for doing hard things that I, that I didn't know, learn, learning hard things. And, you know, I, I, go, I, I think back and I, I think, well, I, I went to one of the best high schools in California when California had good schools, but I, I still don't remember it being very challenging. Um, but I did get a better education then than people get now. So mm. um, I'll say that too. But <clears throat> I think you, I think one of the things, uh, uh, one of the qualities a teacher has to have is the ability and the interest in learning new things mm. that, that need, that is really a necessary quality for a teacher. So it's not like it's outside the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the kinds of things that a teacher ought to be able to do. A teacher ought to be able to learn new things. All teachers need to do that. And I know there's some teachers that teach the same thing over and over and over and over again, but still you should be learning something more about that and, and, and incorporating that experience in your future teaching and all that. But yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, I, I, we talked about this before we, we would walk into the walk in in the morning to school and Cheryl wouldn't have ready, quite ready the chapter of first form or something and it would be handed to us on the way in. On the way in. Yeah. And a, a good teacher should be able to do that, really. And that, that I don't want to scare people with that because there's some people out there who probably think, well, I'm not a good teacher. I, I couldn't do that. But once you get the system down. But we had already, I mean, I had sat yeah. in her Latin class yes. for two years. So I had had some prep. Yeah. And, and I you had taught, had taught Latin. Henley, Henley Latin. So, yeah. so it wasn't totally 
foreign to us, Mm -hmm. but it was brand new material. But if you have a good program in front of you, you should be able to sit down the night before Mm -hmm. and go through the material and know how to teach it, even though you will be learning that day as you're teaching it Mm -hmm. for the first time. Yes, but and I think sometimes that what we've done is hampered that in we've she worked so hard to make sure that everything that we published was so teacher friendly that I think a lot of times teachers don't realize they still need to prep that they still need to go through the material themselves they still need to know more than they're teaching so yeah Cheryl gave me a curriculum to teach but then she also gave me Durant, Caesar, and Christ. She just came in and said, I bought this for you, telling me you need to know more than you're teaching on a fifth or sixth grade level. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, some of what we've done may possibly handicap teachers that don't realize they still have a lot of work to do. We've made it as easy as possible, but it's not fair to your students not to actually do the work yourself. Now, Emily, you're a similar generation to Tony and Martin, but a little different generation. A little different. So like how, quite, what was I'm your experience old of... soul generation, I suppose. That's like it. I could be her mother. Martin could be her father. <laughs> what was your experience? Because Martin's point being that he had a classical education in part before he was a classical teacher. Your Yours was a Christian school education, Christian university. What was your experience becoming a classical teacher? It was very interesting. The The year before I taught at HLS, I was teaching at another school here in Louisville and was just shocked by having had this education degree and being taught a very specific, this is how you should teach. And it was definitely how you should teach in a progressive classroom. And I was ready to just, you know, incorporate technology into all of my lessons and ready to go. And I got into the classroom and there was nothing for me. They gave me the textbook and said, this is at the former school at the former school. Yeah. Uh, They gave me the textbook and said, here's your book. Now you need to, you know, make lesson plans and you need to um, figure out how you're going to teach your kids. And they had very specific requirements as to what they wanted me to do each week, but no, nothing was done for me. And I just spent an immense amount of time that year prepping and planning and not knowing if I was doing the right thing. And the students were not prepared for the things I was doing, the the assignments that I wanted to give them, writing a paragraph in answering a question or, you know, filling out an outline or something like that. They weren't, they weren't prepared for those things. So when I came into HLS and I was hired there and I was presented a box of curriculum that was cohesive and all they wanted me to do was that. They had it laid out for me. They knew ex- I knew exactly what was expected of me. And after attending teacher training, I knew exactly how uh, I should be teaching this. And walking into the classroom was just such a different experience because I had something in front of me. And it was already figured out. I wasn't handed the lesson, you know, that morning. Uh, I was given the box of <laughs> curriculum at the end of the school year. And I had all summer to prepare. Um, but it was just a unique experience because the things that we were teaching, the things that I was teaching, the students were prepared. They had come in from these other teachers with great classroom management. And it was just such a, um, such a different experience. The things that I could require of them, writing a sentence, writing a paragraph at sixth grade, they could actually do them and we could have good conversation. And so it did take me a long time, I think, to get the idea of 
what is the importance of classical education and what is my role as a classical teacher? And it, it took me, I think, a couple years to really get that under my belt, but it was a lot easier to do because of the curriculum that was just set out in front of me. Yeah, th- this is the thing. We're always reinventing the wheel in schools. It's like mm. we every teacher has to reinvent what and how they're supposed to teach. And it's like, we've been doing this for 2,500, 3,000 years, mm. and we're still reinventing it <clears throat> the, right. <clears throat> in the days before we teach. It doesn't make yeah. any sense whatsoever. Let's go into Latin. Now, Emily, you're obviously smarter than the average person by a lot, but Sweet. with with Latin <laughs> specifically, you know, what people don't know is that you're not necessarily like a nerdy, you know, intellectual. You like books and movies and a good time. <laughs> yes. So I think a lot of times when people think of like mastering Latin, they think, oh, you've got to be this like really bookish like person, you, like me, perhaps, <laughs> to, to master an ancient language, you kind of stepped into Latin and make it look easy. What do you think helps you to actually do that? And do you have to have this particular kind of bookish bent to be good at teaching kids Latin? No, I don't think you do. Uh, I do think you have to. You have to like your subject to a certain extent. That comes across to the students, and I just happened to love. The Latin. And what did you like about it, though? Good question. I thought about, <laughs> I actually thought about that in my driving to work today. Uh, what am I going to say if he asks that question? Uh, I hadn't done anything like that before. My foreign language experience was Spanish for a really long time. In fact, embarrassingly long for what I know. Um, and I just really liked the regularity of it. I felt like now as an adult, I get English grammar. And so that made Latin much more accessible. And so even though my students coming in, my first time teaching third form, they knew more vocab than I did. I didn't, I didn't know That's all true. of the vocabulary. But in fact, it didn't really matter because I understood the mechanics of the language um, because I get language uh, and they did not. So that was mostly what I was, what I was explaining. And I think also I really liked the fact that it was just so regular so consistent and because of again the curriculum the form series are they're just really great um coming in i knew exactly what each lesson ought to look like and so i didn't have to worry about extraneous things i could just come in and teach the lesson the way that a second form lesson is taught for the most part and the way a first form lesson is taught and because i got the grammar i'm just communicating that to the students and helping them to see the the fun aspects of it. I do think that's a main, a major point is that when you're teaching a subject like Latin that you don't know that any of us didn't know um, and just learned on the job, I think that the important thing, and I tell parents this all the time, you don't have to memorize all the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You just need to understand how a declension works, how a conjugation works. And it's so regular that at that point, once you have that basic understanding, you can teach it, um, but you need to con- you do need to understand the basis of the language and how mm. how it fits together, like the foundation. And then, well, well and also its relevance to English because on those lessons that I was handed and walking in the door and sitting down, I could I could look at that vocabulary and I could see five mm-hmm. words right away that were clearly some root for mm. a number yeah. of English words. And it's so it's it's almost archaeological, you know, that you've you've got this language here that was the basis for so much of 
of of English, and it was it's 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 you know back there and you know in in that development from the older languages to the newer languages, students kind of think that's cool, you know. Mm-hmm. So you 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 ask them, okay, so what words do you think might relate mm-hmm. to that, and they they come up with stuff, and that's interesting to them that 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 language is not just some language with different mm-hmm. words for the same thing for things that we already have words for um it's part of our linguistic history mm-hmm. and they don't i don't think they have even thought of that before that our, mm-hmm. our language comes from somewhere where does it come from well here's a big piece of it right here and that that's interesting to students i thought the the most fun thing was having l- learned the curriculum because it took me, I think, two years before I was teaching third form with my sixth graders. So I had two years of the sixth grade curriculum. And once I started teaching third form, making all of these connections mm-hmm. to other subject matters. And there's one specific spelling lesson in, in sixth grade that has Latin roots as the, all of the words. And so we were able to talk about what are these Latin words that you know. I think they were all verbs. So like decode, decode to speak. Okay, well then we're getting these words like a dictator. Why do you think that it's coming from this Latin root to speak? What does a dictator do? Or maybe how how would they lead or, uh, you know, when they're up and they're speaking in front of people. And so you're able to make these connections or the students will be raising their hands in science saying, Mrs. Saxon, is that coming from this Latin word? And they're making the connections. Yes. And it's just such a cool thing to see it go completely full circle. Yeah, the language is not arbitrary. Learning is not arbitrary. Reality is not arbitrary. Things mm-hmm. are actually ordered. Yeah. And I think what a lot of what classical education is, and I think that's why Latin is so valuable to it, is <clears throat> is articulating the order of the world to students. Mm. It only took you two years to get to third form. You're so impressive, honey. Wow. <laughs> Oh, Man, what is going on here? <laughs> you are full of it today. So the other thing that are I think, you just oh, like, are you in trouble at home or something? No, no just, that's not how we I work. Love my wife. <laughs> that's not how you work. No. Here. Sorry. <laughs> so the other thing that can be a challenge to classical educators is that there's so many references. I, like I'm reading City of God right now, as I've mentioned to you, and he just off the cuff mentions Horatius. And I, I think I talked about this last week, Horatius, Regulus, Scipio, Cicero. Mm. And it doesn't explain the whole story. It just says, oh, it's like Horatius. And, you know, and you're expected to know that for a classical educator, especially stepping into sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade, mm. there's all these Greek mythological figures. Mm. They have Roman names too. How did you all kind of overcome that obstacle of the interconnect? You just mentioned the benefit of the interconnectedness mm. of the curriculum. How did you overcome the challenge of the interconnectedness of the curriculum? I think the first thing is to actually read Greek myths. I mean, that really mm-hmm. is. Those are the main big illusions that we don't know. And so even, you know, Dolaire's Greek myths will give an adult a great foundation in mythology. Mm-hmm. And then that prepares the students to read the Trojan War in the sixth mm-hmm. grade and the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and and Augustine, finally. But um, I, Cheryl just made me just study um, things I wasn't teaching. But mm-hmm. like the first year I taught the Middle Ages, I spent we every weekend. Um, well, I bought every remaindered book I could find on the uh, Middle Ages at our local bookstore, Holly Cook at the time. And the, and when I was teaching the lesson on Charlemagne, I would look in the index of every one of those books and read everything I could read about Charlemagne. And then 
teach the lesson, which was just two or three pages on Charlemagne, but I felt like I needed to know more. And you don't have to, but it does help mm. if you have to become a student yourself. Amen. <laughs> you wasn't it, wasn't like it, I'm supposed to say yeah, something? Well, wasn't so it a challenge for you? I guess you, <laughs> you had all this down. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I'm. We're still naturally. doing. He's reading Durant. Yeah. I mean, we're still. Oh, absolutely. We're still yeah, working. And who's the other guy you're reading? Durant. That, and yes, there he was. Doesn't remember any of the people he's reading? Do you remember <laughs> the? Because I asked, it was the person that wrote. Before Durant, and so Durant started oh, later. Theodore Momsen, yeah, Momsen History of yes. Rome. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't remember. <clears throat> I'm still working on. I'm on part two. Right, but I, I mean, my point is, mm-hmm. we are still educating ourselves. Oh yeah, and I mean, you when you when you read things, you're 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 not only expanding what you know, you're you're expanding the 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 circumference of what you know, and so you realize there's as you know more that there's actually more to know than you thought there was. And it just keeps expanding. That's right. You feel really, (laughs) really smart at the beginning. Like, okay, I've got this, I've got this famous men lesson down. And (laughs) then the more you read, the less, you know, well, Cheryl used to talk about (laughs) ignorance awareness. That was part of, part of learning is ignorance awareness that, uh, which is a very Socratic notion uh, that you, you just realize as you go along, as you know more that, how little you really do you know. really do mm-hmm. know <laughs> and and that never stops and so but if you're you know for me that's 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 a that's encouraging because mm-hmm. it's like gosh there's so much to know out here the only thing you know you get you get my age and you start thinking gosh i'm how much longer do i have that i'm even going to be sentient you know that i'll be able to <laughs> uh learn more uh but you think you've you got can. a couple of years you think I've got yeah. a couple of you. That's <laughs> Thank you. You're so encouraging. Yeah. Um, now, but you, you know, you do, it, it, when you're learning is, I hate to say this because it sounds so trite. It's used all the time in education circles. Learning is fun. I mean, it's. <laughs> learning, <laughs> learning is, is learning not, is not fun. No. <laughs> it, it, well, it's work, but work is. Learning is joyful. Rewarding. Learning is joyful. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, Rewarding. I'll satisfactory. Rewarding. Satisfactory. It's. I mean, <clears throat> I think for a lot of educators, it's just, uh, it's, you know, like a shark needs to swim in order to live at all. If it stops, it's, you know, you just want, you're, you're always wanting to move forward in your, in your understanding of things. And just think when you're no longer sentient, <clears throat> we can just hand you the same book over and over and over and mm. you won't know, but yes. you'll still have the same sense of satisfaction yes. and reward. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. And, you know, with good authors, it's that. It's true anyway, no matter how old you are. That's right. Mm -hmm. So we'll just hand him the same book, wonder what it'll be. Well, I think this has been a good conversation. (laughs) Mainly because... This is him saying, we better shut this down now. Oh, yeah. You know, no, I haven't been attacked. I haven't yet too much. So maybe we're we're doing well. Maybe we should close it up. Do you think we should attack him? No. We wouldn't attack you. We love you. Thank you. You're welcome. But I don't understand. I'm not going to say that too. Like, <laughs> said they love me. Don't look at me. I don't really still understand why you wouldn't let Emily on the show before now. That is not true. 
It is 100%. I, I do have a Latin anecdote that involves Shane. It okay. could be considered a, a bit of a roast, I oh. suppose. Oh, let's do it. Shane is a great linguist. Yes, he, he is. He has a great handle on the ancient Several biblical languages. languages. Yes. yes. And when I started learning Latin, I thought, yes, he doesn't know Latin. I know something that Shane doesn't know. So I just, I'm going all in. I would come home with Shane. Did you know (laughs) the vocative case? And I would just have something that I thought was so great. And Shane would just look at me and go, yeah, it's the same way in Greek. (laughs) A deadpan. And I'm like, okay, I'll try something else the next day. And he would just be like, yeah, I get that. (laughs) Or I would have a question and he would answer. I'd be like saying my question aloud just to myself. I wonder why it does that. And Shane would just be like, oh. Here's why. That's uh, how language works. Uh, I was so irritating. devastated that Sorry, I, was I was not so the helpful. smartest one in the room. Right. That I'm thinking that would be true in probably a um, lot of areas in yeah. your life when you got somebody. It really is kind of academic. No, she sounds smarter than Shane. Yeah. Really, to me. Well, she down. probably is. Yeah. She is. And maybe in something. He's just working really hard. That's to, right. Yeah, so overcompensate, yeah. yes. Well, this has been a really fun episode <laughs> of the Saxons and Martin and Tanya. You haven't told us how you're going to educate Jack. Oh, he's going to be classically educated. I mean, okay. he already is. He's he's already he's already learning Greek and Hebrew. He does have uh, a well. No, he doesn't. He's got a Latin book. He does have a Latin and book. We read the Odyssey very often. The yeah, classic the, lit board because there's this page. <laughs> there's this page on the Odyssey where they go to the Lotus Eaters mm-hmm. and they have little dialogue bubbles and one of them is like num 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 because oh. he's like just eating, the, eating. and he loves that page. <laughs> so he's already <laughs> deeply in love with the Odyssey. So. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big thing. On that note, it's been a great episode. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.